The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, we are grateful that you have gathered us here, brought us from the many different places of this week and even of this morning, and you brought us here now to, to sit with one another before you and to hear from you. We express thanks to you and worship to you in song, and, and now we want to hear what you have to say, to, so teach us, please. Spirit of God, we need you to open our eyes as you open the word for us and Make clear the mind and the will of God and apply it to us. And I pray particularly this morning that you would apply it to us in a way that is encouraging and uplifting, instructive, but especially encouraging and uplifting. We live in a world that is adrift, that is, in fact, more than adrift, is hard-bent on running from you. And that can be discouraging, so would you encourage us this morning with this word from your word. So teach, we pray, clear away all distractions, help us to to sit and to hear, and will you build your church for its good, for our good, and for your glory, please. Thank you, Lord. Amen. I sound a little ringy to me. I'm not sure if that's true or not. But I once read a book about American soldiers fighting their way into Germany near the very, very end of World War II. Actually, at that point, there wasn't a whole lot of fighting going on because Germany was rapidly collapsing, especially where the Americans were. But still, as they progressed into Germany, this book told of surprising but not uncommon occurrences. American soldiers would bump into German civilians who were still big fans of Adolf Hitler. Not everybody, of course, as the war went on and particularly there at the end, a lot of folks had, you know, would look around and see the rubble and were realizing they had gone the wrong way. But there were still true believers, very much on board, very much followers of Hitler. Little children to grandmas and everybody in between. One story even told of of an old woman who accosted American soldiers saying that Hitler was going to be very, very upset. They were invading Germany. So they would be wise to watch out because he was going to retaliate against them. He would strike back and destroy them. And the soldiers just shook their heads. These people are so brainwashed, so duped. They think Germany is going to win. And they still think Hitler is going to rule. Delusional. Are you a true believer, but really just brainwashed and duped? Not, not in any human being, of course, but 
faithful to the God of the Bible, well, most of the world all around us sees this all very differently. Thinks that we've got it really wrong. How do you know that you're not delusional? Sometimes, perhaps, in the back of our minds quietly, we don't say it out loud probably, but in the back of our minds, maybe the question arises, is this right? Is this the right side to be on? Is it worth it? Especially when it seems like our side's not winning. If you look around and see some of the rubble, you see some, some intense personal hardship befalls you, and God does not bring it to an end. It just gets worse. When a loved one dies, when your efforts at witnessing to a friend or family member not only does not produce fruit, but produces backlash hard. When the church is dismissed or mocked, when it's Pride Month and every company and every town and city and a great number of your neighbors rush to celebrate it, Righteousness and godliness and life and peace and joy not advancing, failing. And God lets it go on and lets us actually positions us right in the middle of it to struggle on through it. Sometimes maybe you see all the evidence, you see the rubble around you and a person wonders, is he, is he real, is he there? Does he really care much about this or is he asleep or absent or in fact fine with all this. I thought he was against it. Maybe he's fine with all this, and there isn't going to be any reckoning for it, nor any reward for persevering through it. And so I'm just enduring and persevering through something that I shouldn't be. I've been duped. Who is he? What's right? Last week, 2 Peter chapter 2, we saw that Peter told us the false teachers are wrong and that their judgment is coming swiftly. He told us that. And this week he picks up on that point and illustrates it from the past, to show it and to prove it from the past, so as to clarify what's right, what's actually going on, and to encourage us, strengthen us for faithful holding toward, with God as we move on towards the future. He's so gonna point back to prove his point, to encourage us and point us forward. That's what we're gonna consider this morning. 2 Peter chapter 2. Let me read verses 4 to 10 and then draw two observations. 2 Peter 2, verses 4 to 10. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment... And if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormented. He was tormented his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials 
and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. We stop there. Two observations. Here's the first. God knows best how to keep the unrighteous until the day of their judgment. God knows best how to keep the unrighteous until the day of their judgment. This passage is really one very long if-then statement. Verse 8, as we'll see, is an aside, but otherwise, as you glance through it, you'll see an if at the beginning of verses 4, 5, 6, and 7, all that leading to a then in verse 9. Verse 9, then, is the conclusion of the argument through the whole passage, saying, essentially, the evidence of history shows that the Lord knows two things. How to rescue the godly. We're going to come to that in the second point. And how to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. That's what we're dealing with now. And, of course, that point right there is the core of what the false teachers there that Peter's facing. It's the core of what they were denying. Sure, they say, we know Jesus said he was going to return to judge, but you who are looking for all that, you true believers, you've been fooled. It's been thousands of years now. Not happening. And maybe verse 3 that we looked at last week, maybe verse 3 might be picking up a bit of their sarcasm. Maybe, maybe God's asleep, verse 3 might say, or maybe his grand plan of history has lost its energy. Kind of like you know, a, lo- a rock kind of has energy, it's tumbling down the hill, but eventually it kind of comes to a flat spot and it settles and it's grown idle. It's not moving anymore, it's grown idle. That's, that's kind of how history works sometimes, and maybe that's what's happened here. But obviously something happened and there is no judgment coming. There probably never was. And Peter denied that, as we saw in verses 1 and 3. The unrighteous face of judgment that is not asleep, but is still approaching. And we say that, Peter says, we say that not just because of what we saw of Christ at the transfiguration, chapter 1, verse 16, and not just because of what we read about Christ and his coming kingdom in the rest of the scripture. That was chapter 1, verse 19 and following. But also... So not just because of what the transfiguration or the other scriptures about Jesus, but also now verse 4, because of what we've seen happen before to others. God has shown he knows how to be patient on the way to judgment. God did not spare angels when they sinned. Now, Peter doesn't give us any of the details here about how many angels, how did they sin, when, Maybe you read about this verse and you'll see a bunch of commentators think that he's alluding to an ancient Jewish belief that the sinners at the beginning of Genesis chapter 6, the very beginning of Genesis chapter 6, were angels. That was an ancient Jewish belief. But that's, in fact, controversial, and Peter doesn't actually say that here. He just gives us a general statement. Angels sinned about things that are generally known. They sinned and they fell, and they became what we now call demons. And his point is... When that happened, though they were themselves marvelous, angelic beings, God did not look the other way. He didn't spare them. 
he cast them out, not into a permanent hell, the permanent punishment, into a temporary pit, a holding cell of misery, submitting them to bondage and darkness to be kept until the judgment, which is coming. He didn't spare the angels, nor did he spare the entire ancient world, verse 5. We get more about that in 1 Peter 3, which we preached some time back, also Genesis 6, where the story is written, so you know it. God assessed that the wickedness of humanity on the earth all around was very great. It says there that all they do is evil all the time, continually. And so God, and actually Peter tells us it was Christ through Noah, God through Noah preached. Noah preached to the unrighteous world all around him. He preached with a hammer in his hand while he built an ark. He preached that there was a judgment coming and no one, not one person, no one listened to him. The seven members of his family and Noah, that's all that got on the boat. God waited patiently for years. The boat was built over years. He waited patiently for the boat to be finished. And when the boat was finished, God brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly and destroyed it all. Destroyed them all. Like he did, verse 6, with everyone in the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Not with water, but with fire. He turned it all, he turned them all into ashes. How sobering is this? Don't let this be abstract concept. People, sandals on their feet, pots in their hands, going to the kitchen to fix lunch, and fire fell from heaven and incinerated every single one of them and every single thing and turned it all into ash, burned them into extinction, a judgment on them. But also look at the end of verse 6, a deliberate, pointed lesson for all of us. By fire, God condemned them, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. Sodom and Gomorrah, more clearly than the flood, the fire of Sodom and Gomorrah more clearly models for us the coming fire of God's judgment and the fire of hell. That's what wickedness, that's what rejection of Christ has coming to it. God knew how to deal with the fallen angels, and he did, and he is still as he holds them, currently kept in prison, awaiting the day of judgment. He knows what he's doing, patiently waiting, and he knew how to deal with the long period of rebellion during Noah's day. He waited until the day of judgment, then he brought it, and so too with Sodom. And that's the point for all of us who are alive on the earth today. God knows how to keep the punishment of the unrighteous pending. To keep them patiently waiting until the day of their judgment.
And this is especially true, verse 10, of those who are unrighteous in two main ways, those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and, it says, who despise authority, God's authority, who cast off God's authority and replace it with their own self-rule, and in particular replace it with the rule of lust. The language of those who indulge in the lust, more literally we could put that as those who follow after the lust of passion. To follow after, to be a follower of, that's the language of worship. That's the language of, of following after so as to give oneself to as to a God The enthroning of human desire, of passion, of feelings, of urges, of lusts, that is such an apt description of the world, not just then, but now. The world is ruled by sinful desire, and God is despised. His rule seen only as an oppositional destruction of what I enjoy. Now, we talked about this last week. But I need to say this now, here again, just to remind us, there's a little more about it last week, but obviously, right, we all feel the mood here in the room going, oh. We need to have more to say more to say than just judgment is coming. Now, that's the issue that Peter's facing. That's the issue in the passage. And as we preach through the Bible, when we come to passages, we don't dodge stuff. So that's what we're going to say. And I'm saying that. But we need to keep in mind that we have to have more to say than just that. Because if that's all we say or that's all we think, you can miss the point that passion, desire, urge, pleasure, joy, delight, those things are in us because God made us with those things. And God intends to meet them and to feed them. We love that because God made us to love it. And the important point is, and God knows best how to fill it. That has to be said, has to be experienced by us and lived out and shown by us. So that when we say, actually, God knows best, people look at that and say, you might know what you're talking about. I look at your life, you might just know what you're talking about. If they look at us and say, your life appears to be terrible, but God's the God of joy. Find your joy in Jesus. Have you? We've gotta live that out and experience that ourselves so we can say that also, we have to have more to say than just judgment's coming. We've got to be able to talk about joy in Jesus and the fact that we are made to pursue pleasure because God made us that way and means to fill it. Said that last week. Need to remind us of that again this week. But that's not here. We also have to be crystal clear that God the Son is going to come back and bring with him the great day of judgment. That's all over this passage. 
That's the core thing being denied by false teachers then and by most everyone else that you're going to meet today. If the world envisions any kind of future day of judgment, it is only for bad people like Hitler, maybe now Putin, or for people who commit mass murder in elementary schools, people like that. If there's any kind of a future judgment for anybody, it's them, but nobody else, virtually nobody else. Certainly not anybody I know, certainly not me, feels the world. Certainly not my neighbor, who's so nice and gracious. I mean, I walk the dog, I wave, she waves. I mean, nice people, good. Fire from heaven, you're crazy, delusional. There's no room for that in the mind of anybody in the world. They just can't imagine it, but history says otherwise. This is so serious because nobody believes it. People are sitting on train tracks having a picnic. They think it's safe because there are some weeds growing up. It looks like the tracks aren't in use anymore, but there's a train coming. The weeds won't stop the train. When you tell people that, people wrote down these stories. People wrote them down. People wrote outside of the Bible. People wrote about the spot of Sodom and Gomorrah. I'm talking about the geographic location of those cities and said that the land smoldered for years. They wrote that down because they knew they would not be able to stand here and tell you and warn us all. And they knew them, nobody would believe it if they didn't pass it on. We need to be warned because the enemy of your soul, the enemy of the souls of everybody on earth will never, ever, 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 ever tell us the truth about that. It will never, ever, ever, this enemy will never, ever, 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 ever tell us the truth about righteousness and judgment. Only it puts in front of us this enemy of our souls, puts in front of us, offers to us everything the world feels is good and wants, and never says anything else is coming. It lies. This enemy lies. It says judgment hasn't happened and therefore it won't. You've been duped. And God's response is actually it has. And the fact that it hasn't happened again yet is because of my patience. My patience because of my kindness. I'm not telling you, says the Lord, I'm not telling you about coming judgment because I just can't wait to crush you I'm telling you about coming judgment because I don't want to crush you. My waiting, my patience, my holding back, my kindness is so that yet one more, maybe one, maybe one more, maybe one more might hear of this, be concerned, and then see Christ as the hope that he is, the only hope that he is. I already sent my son to take that judgment in the place of all who will trust him. I already sent my son to forgive. He came humbly and meekly. He is the king of Psalm 2, the one you saw on the Mount of Transfiguration, and he will come to judge 
But he came first not to judge, but he came first in mercy as a humble servant to take on himself judgment, to offer forgiveness, to save from the judgment that is coming. Be warned. Hear that. And also hear the second point as hope. But we got to hear the first point. I know probably, well, I don't know. I mean, the vast majority, if not everybody in this room, you understand it. You've heard this before. I know you've heard this before. But we need to hear it again in, in part to encourage us. I'm not crazy. I'm not crazy. And in part so you know that other people are in danger. And to be alerted to that. And realize something of God's call, something of God's assignment to us here still. To be witnesses of this Christ who offers forgiveness now while there's still chance. As he patiently waits, holding, holding what's coming. So hear that and also hear the second point is hope. God knows best how to rescue his people into a new world of righteousness. God knows best how to rescue his people into a new world of righteousness. Verse 5, God did not spare the ancient world as we saw, but he preserved Noah when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. In the same moment, it was one and the same. The flood that destroyed was also what preserved Noah. And notice, this is a small little point here that becomes increasingly clear in the next two points, but it doesn't exactly say that he preserved Noah from the flood. Of course he did. Put him in a boat to protect him from the water. He preserved Noah when he brought the flood. There's a little hint there that he preserved him from something more than flood water, more than judgment. Preserved from more, just like Lot was, verse 7, he rescued righteous Lot from his problem too, not just by getting him out of the way of the coming fiery judgment. There's more going on. As verse 9 clearly makes plain now in its summary, he knows how to rescue the ungodly from trials, it says. The flood and the fire were not trials that Noah and Lot were facing. The flood and the fire were the unexpected means of rescue from the trials. From the threats and temptations and struggles and hardships that they faced, living as God's people here in the fallen world, longing for the world of righteousness that is to come. And as such, you think about that, we're supposed to see ourselves right there in their shoes, encouraged by what happened to them. We are like Noah, heralds of righteousness in the middle of the world that is anything but. And while Noah preached and God was speaking through him, that's an important point. We said more about this in 1 Peter, but it's an important point. God Christ himself was preaching through him. So we can't say, Noah did it kind of wrong. 
if Noah had been a little more spirit-filled or maybe a little more persuasive, if he put his argument a little bit differently, if he'd led with something else or he'd had some sort of a gimmick to draw a crowd, then there would have been more success. Nope. Christ himself preached through Noah and not a single person agreed. No, not one. None. He did it right. He spoke the way of righteousness. He spoke God's good law. He spoke the character of God in love and mercy, offering forgiveness. He spoke the gospel, certainly in Old Testament terms, but he spoke the way of righteousness and was flatly scoffed at and rejected. That was, still is, it's happened to all of us. It, that's hard to take when that happens to you once, let alone for years with everybody you ever talk to. happens to us, we kind of think, maybe I'm doing it wrong. Noah wasn't doing it wrong. It happened to him with every single person he ever talked to. And meanwhile, all the people all around him live lives of normalcy as if this is all there ever was and ever will be, and our greatest concern is the price of gas. There is nothing dramatic and cataclysmic coming. And they all carry on ignoring us, and it hardly seems like the powerful word of God is prevailing. More like we're irrelevant. Am I crazy? That's a trial, to be sure. But we're told a lot more about Lot. His trial was much harder, and I think we should listen to this and Dive into this one a little bit. We can identify this quite a bit. This is much harder than being ignored. Verse 7 again, Lot, it says, greatly distressed by what? He's not attacked personally. I mean, you read the story in the Old Testament, and he's perfectly safe himself physically. And we're not told anything about him facing any kind of financial hardship or any kind of loss or threat. So what's he distressed about? He has a family, he has a house, he's got a job, he's got his health, life is good. No, it's not, because Lot was righteous. Life was distressing because he was righteous. We're told that three times about him. Noah was a herald of righteousness, but Lot was the man of righteousness, he was called righteous, and his soul was described as righteous. He was all about righteousness, and he was distressed and tormented then by what? By all the ungodliness, all the sin, all the lawless deeds, it says, all the sensual conduct of the wicked that surrounded him on every side and bombarded him day and night, sight and sound. That's what the passage says. Plastered all over his TV in the conversation he had with every coworker at the office every day, it grieved him and weighed on him and assaulted his senses and mind and heart. Note something very important. He was not disgusted and enraged. We've got way too much of that going on right now in our world. Way too much of that going on in the Christian world. 
distressed and tormented, very different. We need to slow down and consider this for a second. As God's providence would have it, we have come to this passage during what's now called Pride Month. The month that our country has recently dedicated to the celebration of a large and growing collection of beliefs, philosophies, lifestyles, and practices related to homosexuality and gender identity issues. Some of the very same things that distressed and tormented the righteous soul a lot as he saw and heard around him day after day. Same stuff. Sodom and Gomorrah had several large problems. Homosexual practice was only one of them, but homosexual practice was indeed one of them. Verse 7 mentions that here when it talks about sensual conduct. And as an important aside, I'm using the word practice or the word conduct, like verse 7 mentions practice and conduct, to differentiate from attraction. Very, very important that we be clear about this. Same-sex attraction, being attracted to someone of the same sex, that is not in itself sin. Acting on it is. Conduct, practice. Attraction to something sinful the word the Bible uses there is temptation. Temptation is not sin. Acting on temptation, giving in to temptation, that's sin. Not until one decides to follow a temptation, to give in to an attraction, that's when it becomes something that's wrong, when it's acted on. The world wants to say same-sex attraction, temptation, is proof, if you have that, you sense that in you, it's proof that you're made for same-sex practice, conduct. And that, that you feel it, that you're made for it, that's proof that it's all good and right. Whatever you feel is what you are and what you should be and what you should be, it should do, and it's all right as long as you really, really feel it, at least right now. This is incredibly sad and wrong and misleading. Everybody on the earth, all of the world already knows that not all of our attractions are right. Everybody already knows that. You could run through your mind and catalog just a couple of things that people are attracted to, drawn to, that we would say, no, 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 no. Everybody on earth would say, Everybody knows that not all of our attractions are right. Christians know that even more because we also believe, we understand of the fallen nature. We believe in the doctrine of original sin, that we are born, all of us, in countless different ways, drawn after, attracted to, tempted by things across the board in all categories that are wrong. Not just sexual, everything. We're drawn to all kinds of stuff that's wrong. Everybody knows that, Christians especially. And plenty of research has indicated that all of our attractions are fluid, especially 
attractional, relational attractions, relational and sexual attractions, especially for younger people. They come and they go. They change based on many factors, including community, including peer pressure, environment. That's why we need a constant, a good and wise, loving constant from outside of us to tell us who we are. We feel all kinds of things that are some right, some wrong, and some of those come and go. We need something from out, a constant from outside of us to tell us what's right of our attractions. Some word from some good and true and wise source who can point us to where human flourishing is actually found. We need the Bible, God's word, to know what's true and true of us. But of course, we look around and we see all the flags and all the lawns and all the flags and all the advertising emails coming in your, e in your email inbox. And we know that the world does not at all agree with us on this. Does not at all agree with the word of the gracious and righteous master. The word that described God in last week's passage. The one who made us. But the world in this way and in countless other ways despises authority and has made the lust of our human passions, has made the lust of our human passions into the truth. The natural felt strong desires of our own selves is what rules people. Feelings and urges, sensuality is God of this world. Don't be angered by that. Be grieved by it. Distressed for the lostness of others. And check your heart and see if you're willing to be a herald of righteousness like Noah was amidst a world that's, that's like that and isn't listening. This inevitably destroys people. Now and in the future, it destroys people. Do you feel that? Are you grieved by it? And do you want to help point people graciously and kindly, doing good to the world? Remember 1 Peter, doing good to the world and loving the world, ready to give an answer for the hope that is modeled in your life? Or do you just want to blast people? You're so dang frustrated. You just want to blast people. And which is it? God calls us to loving, gracious response. We've got to be clear about what the truth is, but the loving, gracious response to it. But really, what this point is about here in 2 Peter is not about what we say to the world. That was more 1 Peter. What the point here in 2 Peter is about is the internal stress and pressure and angst and dismay, the internal tormenting that it will create in the righteous soul to live among the world like this. Day after day. If you don't care or you're not bothered by the world, that's not a good sign about you. Say that again, hear that. If you don't care or you're not bothered by the world, that's not a good sign about you. It probably means the righteousness temperature in your own soul has been turned down so far or you're so disconnected from the world God's called you into and placed you in that you're not aware, oblivious. 
If you're in it and righteous, like it's four times mentioned in this passage, and now my knuckles hurt, right? You bump into that day after day, night and day, sight and sound. Oh, oh. God's bothered by all of this, and godly character is bothered by all of this like he is, by all of the unrighteousness of the world. I'm not talking about one particular thing. All of the sensual slavery of the world, all of the violence and deceit, all of the oppressive abuse, all of the unbridled greed, all of the environmental exploitation, and on and on and on and on and on and on and on. The world is busted So tragically dehumanizing, degrading of God's beautiful handiwork, denigrating of his glory, despising what is good, no, what is great, and what is to be greatly praised. The world is broken, and the righteous long for deliverance, to be rescued from this into a new clean, righteous world where wickedness is not only not so in your face, but isn't present at all. And the glory and the goodness, the greatness of God is magnified and people are who people were made to be image bearers of a glorious and good God. And the world works. We want that place. We long for that place. And God knows how to rescue from this to that. Maybe in some strange ways. No one would have predicted a flood. No one saw the fire coming. But God brought them, and afterwards what was left was his people and sin gone. His people and sin gone, cleansed away. Now, returned, obviously, because that was not permanent. That was just a model of what is to come. But what is to come is coming. A new creation like what Noah met when he came out of the ark, but better washed clean, a fresh start. God knows how to bring it and to rescue us from this sinful, distressing world into a new, fresh, sinless world where we live with him finally in shalom, rest, and peace in righteousness. So don't give up. You're not crazy. That's coming. History says so. Don't give up in the stressful walk of righteousness. Rescue is coming when the judgment comes. Let me pray. Father, help us draw near, please. Help us. Perhaps there are some of us here in the world who here in this room who are not convinced that there is judgment coming, will you make us aware? Will you persuade us of that? And maybe there are some of us in the room who can't wait for judgment because we're so angry. Would you convict us of that and soften that? Maybe there are some of us in the room who are so depressed and so beaten up because it seems like the judgment is coming, but it's never coming. Will you encourage Take us your people here and make us what we need to be. Address yourself to each one of us individually. Shape us in the way we need. Grow us up. 
Do us good in this way, Lord, for our sake and for the sake of the world and for the honor of your name. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.